thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So tonight we continue our Bible study of the, the book of Genesis, chapter 13. And uh, if you recall, last time we've seen that uh, J- uh, Abram and Sarai went down to Egypt. And we saw what happened when uh, Abram told Sarai to tell the Egyptians that uh, she, he, she's his sister and not uh, his wife, which is true because she is his half-sister. And uh, at the end of that chapter, we saw them leaving Egypt. And now we pick, pick up from that moment, therefore. They've left Egypt and are going back. And now we, the chapter can be divided into three segments. Verses 1 through 6 is going out of Egypt. Verses 7 through 13 is the separation between Abraham and Lot. And verses 14 to 18 is the second promise that God gives Abraham. So let's begin by reading the first six verses. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. Seemingly fairly simple text, uh, but I think there are a number of lessons that can be had for us today. Uh, First of all, we notice in verse 1 that Scripture tells us that Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife meaning that he went up with Sarai, which she hasn't yet been called Sarah. We would have expected that to have happened, because we know that Pharaoh gave his wife back to Abraham. So why does sacred scripture tell us that he went up from Egypt, he and his wife? Uh, And St. Ambrose says that uh, Sarai represents virtue, and that Abraham left Egypt with greater virtue. It's sort of important for us to realize what he was, what this man was able to do, because going down to Egypt, as you know, is going down to a place where people do not worship the true God. It's a place of dissipation. It's a place where you can be lost easily. Very similar to what we have today in our own culture. 
outside of the doors of the church, what you have out there is a, is a society and a, and a culture bent on denying the presence of God. Therefore, in our today's culture, there is very little wiggle room for any of us. Either you really have the true faith, and you work at keeping it, or you will be lost. It used to be in the past, when the society was more reasonable, more conformed to the truth of God and natural law, that the society would carry you forward. Because it was, after all, living according to godly principles. But when those godly principles are gone, there are therefore greater dangers for you to lose your faith, yet at the same time, greater grace from God to help you keep it. So in a sense, it's almost like being a saint on the cheap. Because the situation is so difficult that if you were just to live according to the laws of the church, just following what the church teaches us, it'd be considered to be a great virtue because everything out there is tempting us. right? Um, and um, in the Maronite church, we have a great saint. Uh, he's one of my favorites, actually. He, is, uh, he used to be the professor of St. Charbel behind us. I don't think we have yet uh, a... Uh, oh, he, yeah. We have a small uh, painting of him. It's called St. Hadini. And he, he became a saint simply by following the laws of the Maronite order. He did, Hardini. Yeah, it was his last name. He did, it to the, he did it perfectly. That's all he did. All he did, right? But he's a great example for us because he, his brother was a hermit. And his brother was calling him to sort of leave the world which is kind of funny if you think about it, right? And join him in the hermitage. And he told him, no, I'm going to stay here. And there are greater occasions for us to become saints here than in a hermitage. Because he saw already what is going to happen. So it is for us today. Right? God calls us to live our life as saints. And we wonder how can we do it with the world the way it is outside. But God gives us wisdom to see the truth. And the truth sets us free. So Abraham went to Egypt, and unlike the Israelites who later would go down to Egypt and would be transformed and love the Egyptian way, he did not. So he goes back with his wife, meaning with the virtue. That's the spiritual reading of St. Ambrose. And all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. So, obviously, um, Abraham is very rich, and that's the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise to him. Right? I will bless you. And remember we said the first meaning of blessing in the Old Testament is what? Material wealth. And God provides him with that. Right? I'm, I'm sort of reminded by the Old Covenant. Sometimes we really have a hard time reading the signs of our times because we don't tend to be as seeped in Scripture as the ancient were. But it is sort of ironic as far as I'm concerned that the flu that is hitting us today is called swine flu. Because according to the Old Testament, right, the Old Covenant, pigs were what? Unclean. And remember we said that the covenant has not been abrogated. That if you don't live according to the New Covenant, what do you live according to? The Old. There's nobody on this planet who's outside of the covenant of God because everybody goes back to Noah. Right? So either you're living according to the New or the Old. Isn't that interesting? And isn't it also interesting that it happens right in the great season of Easter? The season of the victory of our Lord? That's what it means to read the signs. 
You know, we don't separate what is going on out there with the cycle of this church. Because when we are right now in the season of Holy Easter, the, the season of victory of the church, and this is happening out there, read the signs. Understand what God is doing. What is Jesus up to? Okay? That's what it means to live biblically, because this is the only way you can live in peace. Is when you look at the world and everything is going out there as the manifestation of the glory of Jesus Christ. All of it is Jesus manifesting His victory. He is Lord of Lord, King of King. Nobody escapes His dominion. And we see that therefore Abraham being able to go back with cattle, silver and gold. And um, on, on a natural level, the, the reason they mention silver and gold isn't just to tell us that he was sort of rich, but also to indicate that he had the ability to negotiate in Canaan. Because in Canaan, if you are in, uh, living the nomadic life, you still need to be able to interact with the population around you. And in, in difficult situations, gold and silver become really good negotiation point. Remember, back then the society wasn't like it is today. Um, I think if, if you've ever read the works of uh, Karl Marx, you'd notice that he made one important point, And he was correct on that point. What he derived out of it was wrong. But this one point he was absolutely correct on. He pointed out that it used to be in, no, in no, uh, older civilization, the time of, uh, for instance, Abram, that you began with a good. Cattle, a house, something material that has intrinsic value. You used money as the way to exchange two goods. But you began with good, you used money to exchange that good for another good, and you ended up with what? A good. So you go from something that has intrinsic value to something that has intrinsic value. What capitalism does is that it shifts things around. You start with money, you acquire some good to get more money. You start with something that has no intrinsic value, to get something that has an intrinsic value, to get something that more of something that has no intrinsic value. And th therein, in the capitalist cycle, there is effectively the root of and the danger of exploiting others. Because you're starting from something abstract, you end with something abstract. When you do that, the danger, the chances of you actually doing something that is contrary to the dignity of man increases. There is a man who is a behavioralist, behavioralist econ um, yeah, behavioral economist. He studied behaviors. So he did actually a number of experiments to find out why people cheat. And he was in a university setting, and he did a number of experiments to find out why do people cheat? And how can I make them cheat more or less? And one thing he found out is that the further we are from the actual good, the easier it is to cheat. Right? So what did he do? He had actually tokens that had no intrinsic value, but if you had a token and you went to a specific stand, you can exchange a token for a dollar. Right? And then he had dollars. He'd leave plates full of dollar bills and plates full of tokens on different tables in the university. The tokens disappeared. The dollars were not touched. Because you were one step removed from the actual value, it's easier to cheat. Then you think about the stocks and the derivatives and everything else, right? 
And the point is, therefore, the more re, re, uh, re, removed are you from the real thing, the easier it is to actually cheat. The other discovery he made is that if he asked everybody... So, one other te- uh, experiment they did is the following. Um, they told everyone in the class, here's a math test. You have ten questions, let's say. When you're done, get up and tell us how many questions you got right, and we'll pay you a dollar for every question. And when they did the first experiment, he noticed that some people um, cheated a lot, but most people cheated only a little bit, which is what most of us tend to do. We cheat only a little bit. But when he asked everybody before the start of the exam to recite the Ten Commandments, most of the people didn't know the Ten Commandments. Well, most of them couldn't even say one of the Ten Commandments. But because he reminded them saying the Ten Commandments, nobody cheated. He, in fact, asked them to recite the um, uh, Oath of Conduct of MIT. Nobody knew what the Oath of Conduct of MIT is because MIT doesn't have an Oath of Conduct. And those were MIT students. But it didn't matter. Nobody cheated. Why? Because you're bringing them to real value. You're bringing them something that is real meaningful. The more removed people are from something that has value, the easier it is to cheat. Right? So, when you see gold and silver, don't take it to mean the scripture is indicating how wealthy he was. Because at the end of the day, both gold and silver are useless. They're not the real thing. The real thing ends up being what? Cattle and tents. Things that, you can, that are useful to your own life. Right? Gold and silver have a different meaning. They tend to be associated with either purity or virtue. That's why you adorn the temple with them. And, and obviously they are precious. Right? They are precious stones. But that was not essentially the purpose of scripture. Not to tell us that he had a lot of that. So therefore he had a big bank account. St. Ambrose tells us that. Um, uh, for this is what it means to be rich. To have what is sufficient to satisfy one's own desires. Frugality has a measure. Richness does not. Its measure is in the will of the seeker. So to be rich is to have what is sufficient to satisfy one's own desires. That is the definition of being rich. And he points out that uh, cattle, silver and gold have the following spiritual meaning. Cattle is the irrational bodily senses. Silver representing the just word. And in Proverbs 10.20 we read, Proverbs chapter 10 verse 20, The tongue of the just man is like silver purified by fire. And gold is a wise mind, which leaves behind him a spiritual posterity. Again, in Psalm 68.13, his posterity shines like gold. So the point that St. Ambrose is saying is that we need to read behind these words, the material words, the reality, the deeper spiritual reality about Abraham. And that is, he was very rich in being able to control his irrational um, um, uh, bodily senses because he was virtuous, he was wise, and he was prudent. And St. John Chrysostom sees in Abraham's riches the bountiful measure of God's providence. He went down to Egypt to escape famine, but God, not content with feeding him, made him rich and indeed very rich. That's how God's providence works. He's not content to give us only the bare minimum. He gives us everything we need and more. If we were to trust him. Then Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. So where did Abraham call upon the name of the Lord? This is kind of important. 
Um, so when he journeyed back to the Negev, he went to Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, be- between Bethel and I, to the place where he had made an altar to, at the first. And there Abraham called on the name of the Lord. So, there is an obvious association between calling upon the name of the Lord and the altar. We have to, we have to notice these things. He called upon the name of the Lord at the altar. Okay? So, uh, liturgy is fundamental in our ability to call upon the name of the Lord. We just can't do it willy-nilly anywhere. We have to be able to associate ourselves with the altar so that our call be heard. St. John Chrysostom again. Abraham anticipates the words of David. Quoting from David, I would rather be of no account in the house of the Lord than take up residence in sinners' dwellings. That's from Psalm 84, verse 10. Uh, what is the point here? The point is that Abram was in Egypt, and had he stayed in Egypt, presumably his affairs would have even grown further because the opportunity in Egypt is much greater than in Bethel, which is essentially out in the woods, so to speak. But Abram prefers Bethel over to Egypt because he prefers to be in the, dwelling in the house of the Lord where the altar is rather than dwelling in Egypt. And all that points to the uh, virtue of, of the man, right? How virtuous he was. Now, Lot went with him. So, we see Abram going from Egypt and Lot goes with Abram. It, it, it's not a given that Lot had to go with Abram. He was a grown man. He had his own camp. He had his own things. He could have stayed with Egypt. He could have stayed with Egypt. So, why does Lot go up from Egypt with Abraham. What was the purpose of him leaving Egypt? So, the first observation to make, and a fairly simple one, is that Abraham had no heir. Who would inherit all of this wealth? Right? So you notice the structure of Scripture. It doesn't tell us that, it, it says in verse 1, Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife. It indicates he was rich, he had gold and silver, and he went to worship. And then it indicates that Lot went with him. So we know that um, he had no no heir. Now St. Ambrose again tells us that Lot in Latin means um, deviatio, which means to deviate. When Lot is with Abram, he deviates from sin. When he leaves him, he deviates into sin. Another reason perhaps why Lot wanted to go with Abraham is that because he feared for his own soul. He saw how virtuous the man is and he decided to stick around. Stick around and be with him. And that is another really important lesson for us, which is that we all need spiritual direction. We need somebody, we need someone, we need a book, we need a reference that helps us stick to the real way. Especially when you have to leave Egypt. Right? Especially when you have to leave Egypt. So what does that mean? Leaving the culture of the world. Leaving the way the world tells you you should be living your life. Leaving the world, uh, what the world um, values, which is mostly transitory and uh, which uh, can be um, a source of loss for us rather than of gain. We need examples. We need someone to be able to follow. And that's why God has before us has raised to the altar these saints as examples for us. And 
given us someone we can look up to and, and imitate. That is important. Now, both Abraham and Lot are, are wealthy. As I said, Lot constitutes a separate unit. But the interesting thing is that in, in verse 5, it says, And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. No silver and no gold. No mention is made of silver and gold for Lot. Only for Abram. And uh, when we consider the um, reflection of St. Ambrose over, over silver and gold, which is representing the just word, that is the, the, the man who speaks prudently, for silver and gold being the wise mind, you can see what scripture is saying about Lot without saying it. So, here we have examples of two men. Both are wealthy. And that leads us to ask a question. Is wealth a good thing? What's the relationship between wealth and virtue? What happens when God gives us great wealth? What does it mean? What does it mean when he takes it away? This is a, a particularly good example for us to reflect on that because you have two men who are very wealthy. Obviously, God gave both of them that wealth. But their makeup, their constitution is very different. Very different. So, what does wealth do? Wealth in and of itself, intrinsically speaking, going back to what I told you before, if wealth is essentially a collection of things, each of which is good, a house, cow, a car, each of which by itself serves a purpose that helps us in our lives and hopefully helps us to live better lives, we cannot say that health, uh, wealth in and of itself is bad. It's a good. It's a natural good. But as we see here, what wealth does and what extreme poverty does, both of them, they both amplify our virtues and our vices. Act as, they act as amplifiers. So that if we have a vice which was hidden because it had no way to manifest itself, and we had weak virtues, then when we come into wealth, that particular vice has now every way of being able to manifest itself. Wealth, seldom, seldom, when we keep it for ourselves, that is, seldom helps us gain virtue. Seldom helps us gain virtue. Only when we resist it, only when we resist it, and we use it for the purpose of God's glory, does it help us gain virtue. And that is why it's very, very hard. It is very hard for someone to be at the same time wealthy and faithful. In the words of, of the Lord in Scripture. Right? Amen, amen, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And he meant by that a small door in a city. He didn't mean the eye of a needle. Right? He wasn't pushing the metaphor that far, but in, in Jerusalem there were doors that were really small, they were called the iron needle, because they were really small doors. It's a lot harder for, a, it was possible for a camel to go through it, you have to push and pull and shove, and it was a painful operation, you wouldn't want to do that. Right? That's what he was trying to say, it's kind of messy and difficult and hard and painful. Right? It's possible right, to go through, not impossible, 
But if you thought about the little needle, that is impossible for a camel to go through it. Right? I mean, I mean, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the needle than it is for rich men to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because naturally those riches impel you to take care of them. And when you start taking care of them, you, you tend to take care of them. And that occupies you. So, but if you are a man who, or a woman of great virtue, and you're given all this wealth, then you are able to work through this wealth and be detached from it. And therefore it will not harm you, it will bring you actually greater glory, because you are furthering the kingdom of God with your wealth. Okay? And don't think it is easy for the wealthy to actually spend money. It tends to be the other way around. The wealthier you are, the closer you are to the money. Because you have so much more to lose. So yeah, you, you'd be spending, proportionally you'd be spending actually less money than most people think. Right? Most of it is invested and you think about investing it again and how you're going to reinvest it and taxes and it keeps you busy. And sometimes awake at night. Not an easy thing to deal with wealth. Not necessarily, but it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily imply that if you're poor, it is uh, uh, immediately easy for you to get into heaven. In fact, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas indicates that uh, extreme poverty can be just as, uh, as bad because it also amplifies your vices. Right? So what is important is to have what we call the, 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 the spirit of poverty, to be detached from the things of this world. And, 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 and as an example, to be really specific, because I like to give you some guidelines when you ask these questions. It's really easy for us to sort of say, yeah, sure, I don't have a lot of money, therefore I fit in this category. Right? You need to remember all of us sitting here, right, we are part of the, what, 5% most richest people in the world? In the world, not America, in the world. Do you realize that? So, none of us should even think about saying we're poor. I mean, that would be an insult to 90% of the people living in, in the world out there. Okay, so, so, we have to adjust our, recalibrate our thought about what wealth means. Right? But to give you a proper example, if, for instance, you are not tithing, if you're not giving 10%, 10% right, of what you're making to charities, 5 to the church, 5% to the church, and 5% to charities, you need to really ask yourself, why? Why is that not the case? Because that typically tends to be a telltale sign that you're really close to your money. And I know, as much as everybody else, the, all the good reasons that can, we can give. Okay, I've got seven kids, my wife doesn't work, I'm the only one who brings food, we have a lot of demands... And then we start thinking, kids' college, and kids' this, and the wedding, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And by the time we've gone through the whole list, we're not going to give... We, we get to the point where we're giving a dollar every Sunday. I mean, when you go to the restaurant, you tip more than one buck. But we have no qualm giving a buck. And we, we do it with good conscience, because we have really good reasons. So, which one of the two are you? Abram or Lot? That's the question. These are the sort of thoughts that have to come through your mind. I'm not saying, you know, you, you might have, we might have really good reasons why, let's say, we're not, we're not able to tithe. But should we just sit there? Or should we maybe double what we're doing? 
If you're giving a daughter, maybe you want to give two. If you're giving two, maybe you want to give four. Right? You want to make an effort. Right? All right. So then again, we have to make sure that we understand this business of wealth. When God gives one wealth, it could be for a blessing, because he knows that he will be able to dispose of it for his greater glory, or it could be a curse, because he knows it's going to be the opposite. I heard of the story of this one family, poor family, really poor people, won the lotto, millions of money, millions of dollars, uh, bought their older son a sports car, uh, which he ended up uh, driving drunk, killed himself, bought their second son a sports car, and he followed suit. And so they ended up suing the Lodo for letting them win. I mean, it's sad. But that's what money can do. The Lodo. Yeah, the Lodo because they won. They had to blame somebody. Right? But, but that's what... And before that, they were sort of a normal, average family. Right? But... Health, I mean wealth, amplifies vices. And wealth can showcase your virtue. But you really need to realize that you have to be very, very strong to resist it. Okay? As an example, um, how many of you like chocolate cake? Just raise your hand. Very good. Now let me ask you this question. Um... There is a chocolate cake sitting in front of you, and you just had a really good supper. Versus, there's a chocolate cake sitting in front of you, and you haven't eaten all day. Yeah? Okay. What happens? The chocolate cake becomes an amplifier. You haven't eaten all day if you don't have strong virtues and discipline to keep you focused. You'll probably eat half the cake. But if you have those virtues, then you will not touch that chocolate cake. So think of the chocolate cake as being wealth. I'll just give you an example of chocolate cake. What if you're going out the door and you see, sitting in front of you, stacked up $23 million? Just think about the first thought that comes to your mind. Just take 30 seconds and think about what is the first thing you will think if you saw a stack of $23 million, and a guy saying, this is for you. What is the first thing you think about? Hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. Just Everybody, just close your eyes and think for a second. What would you say? What would you think? All right, tell me now. He'd like to venture some thoughts. Tell him you're lying. Well, let's assume it's not the case. It's a bona fide $23 million in yours. You won the lotto, and you just brought the whole pile of money. Okay? Good point, though. But no, no one is trying to trick you. This is true. What would you say? How would you feel, by the way? That's all right there. Yes. Okay. Okay. But, but I'm going to talk about feelings right now. How, what kind of feeling would that evoke in you? Okay. What is the first thought that comes? You'd be scared. Okay. Pardon? Confused. Okay. What to do with it? Yes. What would you be saying to yourself? I'm rich, okay? Okay, that's a good thought. We need to do fewer fundraisers, okay? I go shopping, all right? All right? Yeah, so here's the really interesting thing about it. There is a natural tendency to think that money is a good thing. You see why? Because we're hungry. 
if it wasn't you and I walking out there, if it was Warren Buffett, right, or Bill Gates, and they saw a pile of 23 million when, when they think in billions, they may yawn. Right? Maybe I'm getting somebody to pick up the pile from here. Right? Isn't that interesting? The same pile. So be, that's because we're hungry. Hmm? And we think this is the answer to everything. That's the answer to our prayer. Finally, we're going to have peace of mind. Finally, we're going to be set. We won't need anything. And on and on and on and on the story goes. But really, is it? Really, is it? See, the, virtuous, the virtue in us, as we grow in virtue, we look at this thing, and if we've tempered our emotions, obviously the first thing we do, you know, our hearts are beating, what is this thing doing here, right? There's, if confusion, there's fear, there is joy, all those things can come and go, those are emotions. But the thought, the rational thought, if we are detached from all of this, would be, shall I take this, Lord? Is it from you? If it isn't from you, I would have nothing to do with it. You would be indifferent. Why? Because it is God who provides what is good. And isn't God with us? If God is with us, whom shall we fear? It's not that God hasn't given us all this money because He doesn't love us enough. Just He didn't give us all this money because He knows what would happen to us if He did. See, we immediately assume we can handle it. I work in the financial industry. I work for an, a, uh, one of the top largest investment company in the world. I see what people do with, with money. Money is all we talk about. And um, it's not as easy as we think it is. Right? It's not as easy as we think it is. We probably would not know how to handle this kind of money. It takes professionals to handle that kind of money. We wouldn't know how to handle it. Yes, now you're thinking, you'd hire one. That's what people do. They hire one, right? And then you'll start calling him and asking him, what's going on with my money? Am I losing money? Am I getting... And then suddenly, you're in the business of worrying about the money. You see? And then pretty soon, you get so used to it, and you would join this, this club of people in the millions, and you would have a sense that you're not really rich after all. Because there's so many, so many out there who have a lot more than you do. And you think of yourself as pretty average. Poor is not the word used, but but relative. Yeah, you, you're you're just yeah. You don't have a billion. Now, if you had a billion, that would be a different story. Now, you see, you get it. All right. Abraham. The amazing thing about him is his detachment. He's got gold and silver and cattle and everything. He could just retire right now. He's got everything he needs. He can go live on a beach. And what does he do? He goes up to the altar and calls upon the name of the Lord. That's the virtue of the man. All right. Now, separation. Verse 7 through 13. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's cattle and the herdsmen of Lot's cattle. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites dwelt in the land. Verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar, 
This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, while Lot dwelt among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Obviously, all those relationships to Sodom and Gomorrah is in preparation of what is to come. You've, you've seen this happen often in scripture. They introduce a subject that have said nothing about to prepare us for what is to come. It's like, I'm raising a flag. I'm just letting you know this is coming. Okay? So obviously there are ecological conditions in the land of Canaan. Land is, you know, there's not enough water to be able to support everybody. Right? That, that's the natural reason why they're, they're separating. Between the herdsmen, as soon, as soon as the strife begins at the lowest possible level, herdsmen are really good. Their job is what? To take care of the cattle. Right? And so they're trying to contend for the same resource and things are not going well. They, it's raised up to Abraham. Immediately Abraham takes action. Doesn't wait. No waiting on that. He takes decisive action immediately. He sees the problem for what it is. He immediately recognizes there's no way other than separation. He brings it up with Lot and takes action. That's the decisiveness of the man. That's part of prudence, by the way. Most people think that prudence is to sort of be slow. You take your time, you think and think it out and think it again. And No. Acting very quickly is part of prudence. Only when you've honed your experience to the point that you know what to do, you get to do it quickly. You become intuitive. Because prudence built you up to where you can take decisive action immediately. Okay? It's counterintuitive. People assume prudence is being a slow poke. No. It's the other way around. You can be very fast once you understand, once you've pieced those pieces together and you've done it for some time, then you can be extremely fast, intuitive. You look at it, you make a decision, and you move. No hesitation. And that's what he does. So how fast are we to take action? So when we recognize the vice in us, when we recognize we need to change, how fast are we to take action? Do we go to the core of the matter immediately? Immediately. Example, a young woman meets a young man, and she's... Uh, she thinks he's a great guy, and the great guy in question invites her over for, uh, to his place. What does she do? Does she take immediate action? Does she tell him his right act, tells him what she thinks of him, and says goodbye? That's prudence. There's no negotiation there. That's it. Obviously, he doesn't understand, and she's, gonna, she's basically buying trouble for herself. Or a young man meets a young woman... And the young woman is so attached to her parents that she cannot make a decision by herself. The young man usually falls for it and thinks that he can save the damsel in distress. And he forgets that while it may be possible to save a damsel in distress from a dragon, it is impossible to save a damsel in distress from herself. Does he take immediate action? Does he realize that she is incapable of loving him because she's so attached to her parents? Does he tell her? No. Thank you very much. Goodbye. See, that's where we, where we become imprudent when we drag it on and on and on. So you meet people who have been together, engaged for three years. Why does it take three years to be engaged? 
Right? My rule of thumb, anybody who's been engaged for more than six months is in, is, is in trouble. It doesn't take longer than that to figure out this is the right person for you. You know, this is not, this is not nuclear chemistry. Right? That's where we have to learn to make the right decision, be decisive, and cut it. And most of us don't know how to do that. You heard, you, you're talking to a friend, and she starts to talk about somebody else. She is actually telling you things you shouldn't know. You don't know how to handle the situation on the phone. You kind of, well, I want to tell her, but I don't know how to tell her. And you, you haven't prepared yourself to deal with these situations right on the spot. A prudent person would immediately say, you know, how about we change the subject? I, I'm not very comfortable with this. Why? Because you're willing to take the risk that this person may decide that she's not going to be your friend anymore. And if that's the case, she wasn't your friend to begin with. Not worth it. And on and on the list goes. Right? So, Abram, extremely prudent man. He sees a situation, he may love it a lot, very much, but he immediately comes to him and says, here's the situation, this is what we're going to do, we're going to separate. And he's very gracious about it. So he's prudent, but he's not conniving. He doesn't say, hmm, I'm having a problem with Lot and his guys. They're eating into my turf. What should I do to convince Lot to go somewhere else? He doesn't go to, to Lot and say, hey, Lot, you know what? You're a great guy. I like you a lot. Yeah, pun intended. Lot, Lot. Yeah. Okay, fine. All right. All right. Yeah. All right. Just seeing somebody's awake. Um i got a great proposal for you. You know, this piece of land over there, in five years from now, is going to gain so much value, you're going to be rich. None of that discourse. None of that mumbo-jumbo. Straight to the point and very gracious. He gives him the better part. He, the oldest, the patriarch, let the youngest decide. That is being gracious. So, the word strife used here twice is sort of interesting because um, when in verse 8, let there be no strife between you and me. The word strife is actually the Hebrew meriva, which is not the typical word used for strife in Hebrew. That would have been rib. In biblical Hebrew, when you use meriva, you're really referring exclusively to controversies and grumblings of the people against their leader and against God over the lack of water during the wilderness wandering. Right? So that particular use of word indicate as a subtext what is behind all of this. Lot is not just about natural possessions. He's also, in a sense, grumbling against God. And Abraham sees through that. And he's also worried about the spiritual state of his nephew. And he realizes that that strife is not good for him because he's so attached to it all. And because he loves his nephew so much, he gives him the chance of taking the better natural peace. You've got to give it to the man. He's amazing. Right? Well, is the behavior and that's really solving the problem. It's not about the problem. It's about... Salvation. He sees in Lot something that is essentially dragging him down. And he uses material wealth as a mean to bring him back. As this is what Jesus says, if you have money, you ought to use it to essentially get, 
to, to do good. Why? Because you can use it to help others come to God. And that's what he does. That's his intention. He, the man is wholly detached from all of this. And so he tells him, pick the best piece. I'll give it to you. I'll, I'm going to take care of your fears, of your anxieties, because obviously you're unable to rely on the Lord. I'm going to help you. That's what he's telling him. So again, uh, St. John Chrysostom points out that Abraham, Abraham showcases two other virtues. Humility, by, even though he's the oldest, even though he has the right to choose, he gives up that uh, out of love for his nephew, and restraint. But we can add a bunch of them. We can add abnegation, meaning giving up that which, you, which is important to you. We can add detachment from the things of this world. And we can add holy indifference. All those for a man who lived as a pagan and who had none of the sacraments we have. Now, Lot, Lot in Hebrew picks a Kedar, which is essentially an oval-shaped part of the valley of the Jordan. And it is near Sodom and Gomorrah. Why does he pick something that's close to Sodom and Gomorrah? Because at the end of the day, Lot never really left Egypt. He figures, I have herds. I'm going to pick a piece of land that is going to allow me to grow my herd next to what? Two economic centers. Right? They'll be able to grow my wealth. Never mind their moral state. Who cares about that? Who cares about that? You see? So we have to be careful when we're dealing with the world. On our levels. Right? So, every one of us, maybe, many, many of us are in working in the place. Make sure that if you are talking to your colleagues, they understand that using the name of the Lord in vain isn't acceptable to you. You're not going to accept that. Swearing, using vulgar word, are unacceptable. You will not accept that they speak to you or in front of you in this way. Making disparaging notes or comments or sexual jokes are unacceptable. You can at least do that to show that you will not simply buy into their, mode of, their world and mode of thinking. You, you will live differently. You'll uphold certain values that are really important to you. The interesting thing also is that uh, Lot picked a land like Egypt. You notice that, right? When it said, it looked like Egypt. See? His eyes were set on Egypt. Remember his wife later on? What happened to her? She became a pillar of salt, right? Um, yeah, and there's one kid who was being asked in the quiz about uh, the wife of Lot, and he said that she became uh, a pillar of salt by day and a pillar of fire by night. She became a pillar of salt. Why? Because she turned and looked. Look, right? You need to understand, it isn't that she turned and wanted to see what's going on. How is it burning? To turn and look is the same kind of behavior as when Eve gazed upon the fruits of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's to gaze with longing. Right? Going back to my example, there was a pile of $23 million over there. I'm sure you will not look at them as if it was bird poop. There'll be a longing in your eyes towards this. That's what we're talking about. When he looked, that's how he saw. He saw the opportunity. He saw the, 
the money, the wealth, everything. Right? So obviously, he, he's disordered. Now we cannot blame Lot because again, he comes from a completely pagan background. Okay? But that's what we're dealing with here. And so Lot picked a piece of the land that was near Sodom and Gomorrah, which later on will turn, be, be turned into a desert. There's nothing left of it. Why? Because he trusted with what? His eyes. Going back to my pile of money, we trust with our eyes. So often we trust with our eyes. Remember how we always say, first impression counts? Right? That's actually part of imprudence. That's the wisdom of the world. When they speak of first impression, that's their wisdom. That's what they have to go by. But that's not being prudent. Because the first impression may be a complete lie. Everybody knows first impression is important, therefore everybody will make a good effort to make a first impression. I always thought that it would be much better, more realistic, if married couple would defer their honeymoon until the first year has gone by. Because by then they, had, they got to know each other really well. right? So the idea, therefore, is that we have to be careful not to trust with our eyes. And where in particular should we not trust with our eyes? Where is the lesson that we get on a regular basis that teach us that we should not trust with our eyes? Right here, Sunday after Sunday, when the priest raised the Eucharist, all that we see is bread. That alone should teach us not to trust with our eyes. What should we trust with then? The wisdom, exactly, the heart, but the heart illuminated by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. So when we're confronted with a situation, we have to develop the virtue, the habit of saying, Lord, what is it between you and me? What he asked his, his mom. Woman, what is it between you and me? When Mary told him, they have no wine, Jesus immediately surveyed the situation, immediately understood what she wanted. He didn't act on it. Although it was a good to do. He didn't immediately act on it. He turned to her and said, Woman, what is it between you and me? And he doesn't mean by that, why are you bothering me? How do you dare ask me this? He's inquiring through his human faculty, trying to understand what she's telling him. Why? Because in Luke, when he came down from the temple, St. Luke tells us, he was obedient to them. Not that he was disobedient before, but he's basically waiting for the signal that will come by the Holy Spirit that he is about to start his mission. And he knew it will come through his mother. And that's what she was telling him. So, when confronted with situations like this, oh, oh Lord, what is it between you and me? What is that supposed to mean for me today? That is the wisdom of God that illuminates our heart and make us see things the way they truly are. That's how Abraham saw them. And once Lot picked that region, it, it seems that it's been excluded from the land that God, God gave to Abraham. We'll see that in the next part. And then they parted, which means the problem is resolved very quickly. Now, it is interesting that Lot appears as a counterpart of Abraham, just as Ishmael appears as a counterpart of Isaac, and Esau appears as a counterpart of Jacob. There's always this duality between the man of God and the man of the world. Right? 
As Abraham was lowly, so Lot was haughty. He was given the choice by his elder. He should have refused. He should have said, no, Uncle Abraham, you choose first. That would have been the proper thing to do. And here we lose that so much. Uh, when you go in a bus or in a church or what have you, you see young men sitting and older men, older women coming in and no, nobody gets up. There's this hardness about, well, that's my place and I got it, I'm going to sit here no matter what. And Lord, I love you very much. As Abraham was quite humble in letting Lot choose, Lot was insolent in presuming to choose. Do you choose when given the occasion or do you return the offer? Going back to my pile of money out there waiting for you, $23 million. Do you take that moment to think, okay, Lord, what does that mean? Do you interject a conversation with God before you accept or before you take action? How appropriately then, St. Ambrose tells us, says, that scripture says, uh, Lot, that is deviation for choose for himself. Indeed, God has placed before us good and evil, so that each may choose what he wishes. Let us not then choose that which is pleasing at first sight, but that which is truly better, so that having been granted the ability to choose what is preferable, we lift up our eyes and be attracted by nature as one who looks the other way. And the meaning is, when you are given a choice, do not let your eyes carry the choice for you. Take a moment to step back, enter into your own heart, into the secret place, and confide to Jesus, and let the choice come through the Lord. Alright, the second promise, verse 14 through 18. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated for him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see I will give to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your descendants also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abraham moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So notice what Abraham does. He moves one place where there's an altar, he goes to another place, and he erects an altar. Do you see, if if you read through carefully, do you see the monastic life being outlined here in his way of living? You see how monastic he is? He sticks around the altar. He lives where there is an altar. It's the center of his life. Is the church the center of your life? That's the question, right? So, Abraham, um, this promise that you hear, that you heard in this verse, um, in, in these verses, when he said, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are in all directions, for the land which you see I will give to you and your descendants forever. The reason why it's phrased this way is because it is the fixed legal formulas of land conveyance and donation current in the ancient Near East. So, if I were to give you a land... I will express it in these terms. So this is a legal document between God and Abraham that he will do that. That's why it's expressed this way. Raise your eyes. Lot only saw only Sodom. Abraham saw the entire land. Here's the interesting thing. Abraham did not raise his eyes until God told him to do so. To raise your eyes what means what? Is to look further. Therefore to aggrandize your ambitions. To be wanting more. 
Abraham didn't do that. Until God commanded him to raise his eyes, then he did it. Our eyes are constantly fed through television and our neighbor and the radio and all those things about all the material goods that we should have. Our appetite is so huge that if a whale was to show up, we would swallow the whale. And we won't even have to burp. Abraham didn't raise his eyes until God told him to do so. So, should we experience everything? Should we taste everything? Should we do everything? That's what the world tells you. You're going to experience every cuisine, and every kind of food, and every place, and every experience, and every cruise, and every this, and every... St. Ambrose, again, this text is the source from which the Stoic philosophers drew one of their maxims. Everything belongs to the wise man. Everything belongs to the wise man. Likewise, Proverbs 17, verse 6 says, The whole world of riches belong to him who is faithful. The whole world of riches belong to him who is faithful. And by this is meant, at the end of the day, what is good will come to the good. What is good will serve the good. If you're with God, God will use the wealth of the world to serve you. And make sure you will be taken care of. Look out from where you are. Ancient Roman legal thought recognized as a mode of acquisition by sight and intention. So, oftentimes, and in some of the, in the, East, in, in, um, in the Middle East, still today, they'll talk about the same way. They'll stand and they'll tell you, uh, you see that tree over there, and that rock over here, and this thing over there? Well, that's the limit of my land. Well, if you were to get a land from somebody, and he were to tell you, my land is from that landmark to this landmark, etc., that would be uh, legally binding. So this is what God is doing, essentially. He's using the mode of the uh, ancient Near East to communicate a thought that every reader would have understood as being a legal engagement on God's part to give Abraham this land. God is signing a contract with him. I'm going to give you this. This is going to be yours. To you and your offspring, royal language, even though Abraham is not included. And forever. That land is given to Abraham and his descendants forever. So legally... From a legal point of view, as far as we are, as far as we are cons- concerned, that land belongs to Israel. There's no debate, there's no issues, there's no question. It belongs to them. God gave it to them. And his descendants, which is Israel. Okay, there's, there's no debate, and we cannot debate over this. Whether we like it or not is a different issue. But Israel, Jacob, is the recipient of the promise And to Israel was the land given forever. Forever. Now that's a really interesting word. St. Augustine comments on that. Let's think about it. God is saying this, right? God is saying forever. I, I read scripture, right? And scripture doesn't lie. Okay. What does forever mean? What does forever mean? No limit, right? Okay. Forever. What is going to happen in, say, um, I don't know, hmm, 12 billion years from now? What is going to happen to Earth in 12 billion years? You're going to get swallowed by the sun. Right? When the sun reaches its end of life, it's just going to expand and then blow up. Bye-bye Earth. Forever. See the 
problem we have? So therefore, this text cannot be purely interpreted in a natural level. The forever that God says still stands, but it has to be interpreted in a spiritual sense as well. And the real meaning, therefore, isn't just about the land, which is hence provisionally given to Israel. That was the, po- the, the point, the main point of St. Paul. That's the fundamental intuition that St. Paul was able to acquire through the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. In that, the land of Israel is only temporary. The whole Old Testament is only temporary. It will not last forever. The only one that will last forever is the one that ends in heaven. Where you have it forever and ever. And that's the church. So this is prefiguring Christ. This is prefiguring the witness of Jesus Christ. Now there's another important point I want to make. If you are to live according to God's command, where would you live? According to this promise. Where are you supposed to live? In Israel. Right? Physically, you had to live in Israel. Right? Physically, where were you supposed to worship when Israel was built? In the Temple of Jerusalem. Right? You couldn't be worshiping at home. You can go to Spain, sit down there and say, Oh, there, you know, I'm just going to sit down and worship right now. God would not accept your worship. You had to go to the, you had to physically go there, yes? Okay, physically. I want you to keep tab on this physical image. Now, what did we say with this business of forever? We said that this cannot be about the land, because the land will not last forever. It has to be it's something that the land prefigures. Israel is a prefiguration for what? The church. The church. Right? And the forever indicates what? Heaven. Right? So to go to heaven, where must you be physically? I'm hoping that this is helping you get away from this sort of amorphous image of the church as being just the body of all the believers. You can't take the land and cut it in small pieces and distribute it in the air and call it the land. Can you now? The physical image of the land constrains us. We cannot just break away from it freely and say, oh, it doesn't matter. It's just all those who are out there. No, no, no. Physically, you have to be there. Physically, we have a body. We have to be in a place. You understand? So that's the second, the second teaching we get about no salvation outside of the Catholic Church from Scripture. One of the most pernicious ideas we have in this century because of the breakup in truth is this notion that it doesn't matter, you know, everybody out there can be whatever they want. I'm, I'm sure you've heard the joke about, that non-Catholics say about Catholics, that a Protestant went to heaven, and when he went there, St. Peter was showing him the place, and he went to a room and said, now you have to lower your voice. He says, why? Because this is the room where the Catholics are, and they think that they're all alone. Right? Meaning that, well, there's so many Christians out there, but we have to put up with those Catholics, they think they're alone. Well, the, the truth is that, yeah, they are alone. There's nobody else. If you can be alone in that sense. Okay? And I'm not making this up, nor am I saying this because it just pleases me to say that. Scripture impels us to do this. The, 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 the fathers of the church were really specific and clear about this. And something we have to understand. Why? So we can share it with others. Right? It's not about condemnation, about telling somebody, you're not going home. None of that. We're saying that at the end of the day, all those who are even now, right now, officially inscribed in the, in the Catholic Church, or those who are maybe like Abraham, outside the physical boundaries, are all living through the graces of the Catholic Church. They're all fed by the Catholic Church. 
whether we recognize them being here internally or they're outside and they're making their way to heaven. They are all going to be getting to heaven because of the Catholic Church. No salvation outside of the Catholic Church. You understand? And while they may die here on earth, not being officially inscribed as Catholics, when they hit heaven, they're all Catholics. Because that's all you have up there. I hope it helps you clarify and understand the sort of uh, duality of the reality of the church. Right? We're not saying that only those who are formally inscribed go to heaven. Many of them don't, actually. Nor are we saying that those who are not don't go to heaven. And there are fewer in numbers. There are not many of them, right? because they're separated from the sacraments. But they are people who are not officially Catholic and do get to go to heaven. But only through the graces of the Catholic Church. Yeah? Make sense? So that's how we have both. And sometimes you wonder, but hey, there's this Protestant community out there. It's so vibrant and lively and they love the Lord. And they're, Yeah, they're all getting those graces through. They're being fed through the table of the children, through the Eucharist, because the Holy Spirit wants to reach them so that they can eventually get to the truth. Yeah? There's no contradiction there. Do you understand? Yes. No, I'm not saying other religions. I'm saying other individuals okay. will make it to heaven. Individuals who are not formally in the Catholic Church will make it to heaven. Because of the fact that they follow the dictate of their heart. This is the, te- the teachings of the Second Vatican Council. If they follow the dictate of their heart, which is the natural law, the Ten Commandments, that God inscribed in the heart of every man. right? Essentially, this is the power of the Old Covenant. If they do that, they can also attain unto salvation. But only through the agency of the church. Not outside of her. Do you understand? Put differently, if the Catholic Church did not exist on earth, nobody would would go to heaven. Yeah? Okay. It's the graces that flow from the church that make it possible even for them to attain unto heaven. Because Christ has only... At least that gives people options. Yes, but, I agree with you, it gives people options. But I don't want you to feel too comfortable. No, 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 no. What I'm saying is that I don't want us Catholic to feel too comfortable as in, well, that's good. So those people out there who are not Catholic can make it, so I have nothing to do. I don't have to. I'm not talking about you. I'm just saying, but there's another important point. There are different accidental, there are different levels of accidental glory in heaven. Yeah? Not everybody will shine the same way. These same people, if, you were in, if they were in a church, their glory would be so much greater. Just talking to a lady who um, for, was very, very devout most of her life, did incredible things. And only recently she has discovered through Opus Dei the power of confession, living the virtues, going to daily mass. And she said, what a waste. Had I only known. That's the point I'm trying to convey. Right? So, alright. And so, we see him therefore building another altar there, and again, worshipping God. So, Abraham's focus, even though he has all the riches, and all the gold, and all the money, go from one altar to the other. And so should we be. That should be the focus. Because this is how he's rich. It's with his relationship with God. And God makes this promise to him, we know it will not be fulfilled during his life, but it will be fulfilled later. And that's so important for us to know that even us, right now, as we live, God has made a promise to us that if we are faithful to Jesus Christ, 
He would extend salvation to us, but not just to us. Through the merits that we would have gained in our lives, by the sacrifices, by the good works of good deeds that we would have done, we also can help save others. And that's why Abraham is such a really important example for us, because when we study his life, we learn to live better and to be good imitators of Christ. God bless you. Okay, we have some questions for some time for questions. Yes. Yes. Did, did he offer sacrifice when he erected the altar? Usually don't erect an altar if you don't offer sacrifice. Yes. Good question. So the question is, since we know the universe is going to be renewed after the end of the world, would it be possible that the forever that God gave Israel would still exist afterwards? Well, the, the, the difficulty you hit is that after the final judgment, there are only two groups. Right? There's only two groups after the final judgment. There are the Catholics, and then there's the damned. Right? Essentially. Plus, maybe, and that's hypothetical, all those um, you know, aborted children who are not baptized, who may live on earth in a state of natural happiness. Right? And this is something that the church is still working her way through. But fundamentally, if you set those aside, because yeah, I hope you all understand, an aborted child doesn't go straight to heaven. He's not baptized. Okay, we can't just circumvent that and say, oh, well, you know, no, it doesn't happen. The church is working on this right now. There's a commission established by Pope Benedict XVI to deal with limbo specifically. We're waiting to see if they can come up with something that helps us go around it. Because obviously all of us would love if we could say, aborted children go straight to heaven, but that's not the case. Hold on to your questions, all right? So, going back to your question, there will be no Israel left. There will be the new Israel, and that's it. That's why it doesn't necessarily apply. No. No, because it's the church. The new Israel is the Catholic church. And so therefore, the church has dominion over the entire universe. Everything becomes Israel. Everything is the church. And, and so that, that particular possession of the land only applies until the end of time. Because it is provisional. It is part of the old covenant. Okay? Yes. Different question. Very good question. What if the child dies naturally? The fact, if the, if the mother had every intention of baptizing the child the child will benefit from baptism because there's the intent of baptizing the child. Right? That's separate. That's why only single abortion. Yeah. No, not the ones who are, let's say, a woman um, uh, miscarry. No. If she was in the habit of baptizing her children or her intention was to baptize the child, even if the moment, or the moment she doesn't think of it, God takes our intention. He knows what covenant we have entered in and He carries that forward. They're different. No, it doesn't apply. Good question. If a Muslim, we're talking about that's why we talk about the covenant, right? You have to be within that covenant for the for the for the baptism to apply. Yeah. Yes. Uh, indulgence. indulgence. There is a difference between indulgence and merits, because that's the fundamental reason why. Indulgences are pure graces given by God, right, on account of His unfathomable mercy, right, and it is taken from the treasury of the church. And given to you. Why? Because of your contrition. If they're not contrite, you can't apply it to them. Simple as that. But merits, on the other hand... So why does it work for the purgatory? So. Because that's, they are there out of pure, the pure mercy of God. They cannot gain merits for themselves. And so therefore, the mercy of God covers them and is willing to apply what you give God to them. But in the case of those who are alive, they still have the occasion of 
um, expressing remorse or expressing contrition, right? And hence, it will not apply the same. Because otherwise, what would be the difference with purgatory? What would be the difference? Yeah. You still have a choice here. Purgatory, you have no choice. You can't even pray for yourself. For yourself? No. No, you cannot. Yes. And no, 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 no. It's the fact of the mercy of Jesus Christ. You're there because you have temporal punishment that you have to pay for. And you cannot pray for yourself to speed it up. So, but Christ being so merciful allows others, right, to help their brothers because He wants us to help each other. And He will not restrict us. Even when somebody's in purgatory, He still gives us the ability to help them. No, but wait a minute. Again, your merits can be applied. Yes, when you sacrifice, when you fast, when you, when you suffer for somebody, those can be applied. But the indulgence is given you as a result of your contrition. Okay. And it cannot be transferred to somebody who doesn't have that contrition. Contrition is not transferable. I can't have contrition on your behalf. You can have contrition on my behalf. It, do, it won't do us any good. Otherwise, Judas would be in heaven because of Our Lady. Okay? okay? Is purgatory beyond, beyond space? Prayers. prayers. Beyond space. Uh, through the miracle of the cross. Yes, but not by in and of it themselves. Because Jesus is beyond space and time. That's my understanding. Through the, the cross of Jesus Christ, you could ask that these prayers be applied. Now whether they are or they are not, is out of our hands. It's all dependent on the mercy of Christ. Why do we say that? Because of the fact that Christ established precedence. How did he open the gates of heaven to Elijah? How he, did he prevent Our Lady from contracting original sin? Even though he had not yet died on the cross and open up for the gates of heaven for us. It's essentially, Jesus has said, I know what I'm going to do, and based on what I'm going to do, I'm paying in advance. Right? It's actually not paying in advance, but I will pay that. This is a note in my name, I will pay for it. So, he applied the benefits of the cross to Elijah, and to Enoch, and to Our Lady, before the event happened. Right? And likewise, our sufferings, united to His on the cross, can be applied in time. But it's all Him applying it, not us. Yeah. Yes. A merit is something that you acquire because of your sufferings, because of your fasting, because of your good deed and your love of Jesus Christ. An indulgence is something given to you, which is taken from the treasury of graces that is, uh, that, that is in the church, that is the deposit of all the graces of the saints throughout the ages, and given to you freely by God because you have contrition. Because you feel sorry for your sins, because they offend Him, not because of the pain of hell. You see the difference? Yeah. Yes. Because that's in chapter 14, which follows chapter 13, which was after Lot had left him. Correct. But he understood when Lot separated himself. Notice. Good question, because right now God said, you see this? This is the land. He circumscribed the land and excluded the area where Lot was. And Abraham understood that Lot was out. Yeah. Good question. You had a question? Or somebody? Yes. God will act upon your desire, your intention. Right? When a child... So obviously now, those Catholics who are aware of this, and who maybe are still in the age of re- having children, if a... If a um, I know of a number of families, when the mis- miscarriage happens, they still look for the fetus and baptize the fetus within the first 20 minutes. Because then the baptism is still valid. They do it non- regardless, but even if they didn't do it, it would still be valid. You're absolutely correct. Because when a woman aborts her child, it's a curse that she's imposing on him. Why do we say that? Absolutely. That is, you're right. That is the teaching of the church. But 
why does the Holy Father say, we'll leave them to the mercy of God and not, they're in heaven? Do you think if the church could say, they're in heaven, the church would not have said it? Well, because we cannot circumvent baptism. You see, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas refused all the arguments that were brought to him about the Immaculate Conception of Our Lady because they all circumvented baptism. Not because he didn't believe that Mary was immaculately conceived, but he couldn't see the argument coming through. Right? So likewise, in this case, if we were to say that an aborted child goes straight to heaven, we've basically said we found a way to get there without baptism. But we cannot do that. Because Jesus said, unless you be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you will not go to heaven. We cannot just go around His will, his will and say, oh, well, if you're so bad for them, we're going to do it anyhow. It, it'd be wonderful if the church could, but it's a very difficult argument to carry through. Yeah. I know, and there's another priest who has developed a very powerful argument to say that the aborted children are very much like the children who were killed when Jesus was... The innocent. The innocent. He's constructing an argument around this one, but there's a fundamental problem with it, that we have to go around it. In the case of the innocent, these were families who, are, who were in the covenant. Meaning the families themselves were in the covenant of God. They were not against it. But when you have a woman who actually abort her child, she's applying a curse on him. Different situation. And we cannot just ignore the lineage, the parental lineage, and say, oh, it doesn't count. Look at us. Adam and Eve committed the original sin. We don't even know them from Adam and Eve. And here we are, stuck with it. You see how powerful the lineage is? So we have to be careful. Not, get, not let us, the desires carry us where we really can't go. But we pray that through the commission that was established by Pope Benedict XVI, that a proper theological answer could be provided for our desires. But it may not. I don't know. And, and St. Saint, Saint Thomas Aquinas, who is our, you know, in, in case of doubt, you go to St. Thomas. This is what the church says. Teaches us that in no situations, these children will not go to hell, but would live on earth in the natural beatitude that Adam and Eve enjoyed before the fall. Which means that they will not get to see the beatific vision. That's the difference. But they will not be in hell either. So, there is, you know, there's a comforting thought there. Alright? Okay, last question. Uh, the question is, did Abraham go to Mecca? Let me ask you this question. Let's assume the answer is yes. He did go. He went a lot of places. What does that prove? Nothing at all. Oh, that he built this? No. No, I, there's no, there's no evidence that he did. But even if he did, let's assume he did. What does it prove? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah? God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www. Dot carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.